Matthias Peter Johansson is a JavaScript engineer at Spotify, and he writes about JavaScript on Quora and Twitter. Matthias, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much, Jeff. There is a graph you have posted in many of your Quora answers that shows how the most popular language in new GitHub repositories is JavaScript. And JavaScript has been on an uptick since 2008 and is now more popular than Ruby, Java, and other languages. What are the factors that are driving JavaScript's adoption? Yeah, I get a lot of criticism for posting that graph because it, it, people say that it reflects... GitHub specifically and web development specifically, but I think that JavaScript seems to be prolific in all kinds of fields, especially the Internet of Things. Uh, it's it's getting a lot of traction, uh, and on the server side with Node.js, uh, a lot of people think that JavaScript is getting a lot of traction just because you're forced to use it in the the browser, but and and to some degree, I think that explains its popularity, but not the entire picture because you know people use it and 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 li- seem to like it and you uh, use it on 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 things where they don't have to use it, like backend things and, and Internet of Things, and uh, it's also used as script as scripting language in uh, in uh, Unity three D, sort of. It's not really JavaScript, but it's close enough, uh, and. I discussed it with one of my colleagues. Why? Why is JavaScript popular? Why is it? What's What's the reason for it? And I think it's just because there's something to it that makes it fun to write. Uh, I I'm not a fan of PHP, but um, PHP is one of those things that focuses really, really hard on getting feedback to the user as fast as possible. You, you get something on the screen very fast, you get results really fast, and, it, and the language doesn't get, get in your way. And that's, that's both a good thing and a bad thing, but one thing it does is that it makes it really fun to write. Uh, also, JavaScript is getting a lot of traction from different areas because it has these... It's such... Um, I know that Brendan Ike was coerced or fooled into writing JavaScript as he was sold on, yeah, you're going to write Scheme in the browser. So it's, uh, that, it means that the language has a very strong functional heritage. So right now with React uh, jumping, um, like becoming popular, we have a lot of uh, people that were previously uninterested in JavaScript getting into it because they realized, oh, this is a functional programming language, sort of. You can write, you can write functional code in this. So there's a lot of people coming in from Clojure. Uh, and it, it's just a language, I think it's just a language where a lot of programmers meet. It's yeah. where a lot of paths intersect. So yeah, we're going to get into the React stuff eventually, but um, so I want to talk a little bit more about the high level. I read a syllogism this morning from Eric Elliott where he said, quote, software is eating the world, the web is eating software, and JavaScript rules the web. So <laughs> I guess, so in, so in this regard, this would sort of uh, dovetail uh, nicely into your your critics who, who say, you know, oh, this, you know, this just covers GitHub repositories, which is web development. Because what Eric is basically saying here is that, well, everything is going to be web development. Yeah. Was it, uh, who said that? I think it's Atwood's Law or something. Yes. Uh, that uh, if something can be written in JavaScript, it will be written in JavaScript. Yes, that's correct. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. It's, that's, that's, that's the way it's going to happen. I'm not sure if it's a, if it's a good idea. Uh, I'm, I'm actually more certain that it's, it's a bad idea to use JavaScript for everything, but uh, I, I still think that we will do it. I mean, just because something is a, uh, uh, something is a, is a bad idea doesn't really mean that we as a human race <laughs> avoid it necessarily. Well, why, so why would you say that JavaScript, writing everything in JavaScript is a bad idea when you're um, such a big fan of it? Um, like, just because you're a big fan of it doesn't mean that you, you, you're a fundamentalist, right? I, I, like, I like programming. I like a lot of languages. I, I'm really interested in Rust now at the moment. But the thing, the thing with it, I think there is, I think people are searching for God in a way. Uh, you're looking for um, you're looking for a savior, especially in JavaScript. In, in, you can you can see it in in JavaScript frameworks, right? You uh, everybody is confused that there there's a lot of frameworks. Uh, there's a lot of tools, and people are confused. What 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 tool do I use? So people eventually tend to uh, converge and try to find this 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 Uber tool that they can use for everything. And right now, that is, uh, I think that's sort of Angular. Uh, but this is not a new tendency. It's it it, it arises in all kinds of uh, software development scenarios, such as I think that SharePoint is another example of where people just converge on this <laughs> single technology and and use it for everything. WordPress is another example where where you just I have I worked as a consultant for a while and I have like seen WordPress like being bent into the most weird shapes. Uh, people just want to find for, for people just want to find a, a single tool for for stuff and I think that that is a bad bad thing to do. I mean, I love JavaScript but I mean, there are cases where you just shouldn't do it. You should look at your problem and find and, and see what tool fits that purpose. Okay, so so in thinking about that, I, I want to discuss that as a motif throughout this conversation. But so when you look at the present trends within JavaScript, what are the predictions that you make about the future in terms of the tooling and uh, you know just technology in general? You know what's 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 going to happen in the future? Yeah, I think that. Ah, making predictions about the future. We can I, come I, back. We can come back to that. In more no, 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 yeah, no, no. I want to. Okay, I just, sure. Uh, it just, um, okay. So your you most your most bold, what? ambitious predictions, regardless of the probability. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I. Uh, one one thing that you do when you predict the future is you, it's kind of colored by what you want to happen. So you want to see that you, you you tend to look at uh, those scenarios and but so this this might not be what this is what I want to happen uh, and what I'm looking for evidence of happening and I think there are there is some evidence. Uh, I think that JavaScript will become. Much the, the JavaScript that we will write in the future is going to be much more functional than it is uh, than it is today. Uh, the reason is that we are currently looking at a a future in software development where CPUs uh, have effect is are effectively approaching 
how much clock speed you can squeeze out of a single core. Uh, I'm not familiar with the re exact reasons, but we're basically running out of molecular space. So what we're going to see is probably a, a lot more cores, which means that uh, parallel programming is going to be much, much, much more important. Uh, and when you get into that, you start looking at, okay, why is parallel programming hard? Well, it's hard because mutable state. Uh, so people start avoiding mutable state, and then you start looking at what, uh, what programming paradigms uh, avoid mutable state. Well, uh, functional programming avoids mutable state, and people go become interested in, 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 uh, in, in functional programming. And JavaScript has a lot of functional stuff built in, and it has had that for years. So it just fits very well, uh, well into it once you start doing it. Uh, and that is, that, that is my one big prediction that I think it's going to happen more. We're going to get a lot more um, functional programming uh, in JavaScript. And we, we have already, if you look at, for instance, uh, uh, the, the functional programming la uh, framework Bacon, it actually has more uh, stars on GitHub than the, than the Haskell compiler does. Uh, so uh, I think that JavaScript is pushing functional programming already. And does the Node.js event loop paradigm, the single-threaded event loop, does that fall in nicely with the this uh, this future of you know functional and uh, you know increased cores that you imagine? Hmm. No, I don't think so. Uh, I think that no. It's totally orthogonal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I really, I don't think that uh, Node, I mean, it's, it's still, Node is, I'm not sure, how, I think that when you do, it do uh, like ultra parallel programming in Node, you basically, there's basically no facility for that. You just have to like spin that up into a, a hog ton of, of processes. It's 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 tricky. It's, it doesn't really have a strong facility for that. Uh, well, so is, that's that's kind of where I was going. As I was thinking, like you know, if you if if we want to do this, you know, separation of concerns across individual processors, maybe Node provides a good paradigm for that because Node says, "Hey, this is this is a single thread. You know, this is allocated to a single processor." I don't know, just paradigm wise, maybe that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Um, I think the node has some. I, I I don't think that necessarily that the future uh, future lies in node. I mean, node is a, is when it comes down to it a very simple thing. It's just uh, it's just a V eight engine with some I O welded on, really, and some libs. Uh, we uh, move. I I think that if somebody invents something that uh, something new that is more focused on on parallelism uh, is that the right way to say it not a native speaker yes um, and uh, then I think that the JavaScript community will uh, will move pretty quickly because it's it's there it's still gonna be JavaScript and uh, I think that we're, we're pretty pretty fast at uh, jumping on on new things uh, notice Sure, it's nice with uh, with the single thread and just single thread, single process, uh, and just have those those processes intercommunicating. But uh, the tricky part is that yeah, that's fine if you have like a server farm. But 
let's say that you have like in the future you say that you have a thousand processors or something like that uh, on a single device intercommunicating uh, then you run into the problem that you need you need to have a very low overhead in the communication between processes uh, and I think that you need to have more clever ways of dealing with that. I've just started reading into it. I ran, in, I, I was at a conference recently, and I ran into this interesting new programming language called uh, Pony uh, that uh, integrates actors as a uh, language level feature and actually checks for race conditions at a uh, at a compile time level. So you can't have you can't have race conditions. You can, uh, uh, in your uh, at runtime because they checked at compile time. That's fascinating. And yeah, I, I think that there is a lot of I, I think there is a lot of thinking to be done on on parallel on the massive parallelism that we need to be facing. And it yeah uh, I don't think that Node is, is the savior yet. But I think that JavaScript uh, has uh, as a language has some way to go past Node. Okay, well, I appreciate the uh, the the hesitance to to call Node a savior, but I think so. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about Node, though. So Node Node allows JavaScript to be compiled, as I understand, allows JavaScript to be compiled directly to machine code through the V8, and this is kind of the big breakthrough. Um, and there's been a, this has driven an explosion of technologies built upon JavaScript. And I've been hearing the phrase JavaScript is the new bytecode. What do you think of that phrase? Um, <laughs> if you ask me like a couple of months ago, I would have said yes, but, um, a few, a few weeks ago or, or a month ago or something like that, uh, Brendan Ike announced WebAssembly. You know about this? Yes. I, in fact, I was hoping you would, you would have, uh, have something to talk about because I've, d on several episodes, we've discussed WebAssembly vaguely. We've discussed ASMJS vaguely. And whenever I say... Oh, so so what do you know about this? They're always like, ah, uh, you know, I'm kind, not really sure. I know it's big, but I don't know anything about it. So if you know anything, please, like, you know, go nuts. No, I don't. Let's discuss it vaguely <laughs> and, and ambitiously. Sure. <laughs> it's uh, no, I I I'm in the same situation. It seems like uh, WebAssembly is definitely this big, vague thing. It almost reminds me of. Uh, when I when I started web development and I heard about uh, XML, it was incredibly mysterious and it was unclear <laughs> what you used it for. And you just oh, what is this? Uh, so it's it's good to have that feeling again, something new and mysterious looming on the horizon. Um, but uh, but no, I don't I don't know much details about it except that it's uh, it it's it's it is what it sounds like. It's 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 assembly for for the web. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not a full fledged language. It's just something that you can. It's an extremely primitive uh, structure that you can compile almost everything down to. Yeah, it's like uh, a subset. It's like a, as I understand, it's like a subset of JavaScript, and it's just like you know you compile all your JavaScript down to this subset of JavaScript, and it's just like you know add one right it'll be like a function that's just yep. like add one to something and it's all it's just like you know the register register language you you know you learn about in in your classes that are uh you know this the whatever classes sit between uh electrical engineering and computer science where they're just telling you these primitive 
assembly languages, and it's like it's a JavaScript version of that. Yeah, precisely. Uh, the the interesting part about it, uh, from my perspective, is that a lot of people have tried to, you know, replace JavaScript in in many ways. Uh, but the interesting part about this is that it is, as you say, a, a extreme subset of JavaScript. So this will be able to execute on the existing JavaScript uh, runtimes. Uh, it, it's going to be a pretty simple thing to convince browser makers to add support for this, unlike something like Dart, which is very difficult to uh, to get a browser maker to uh, to implement because it you know it would add a lot of complexity and a lot of work for very little benefit. But but not this... only that, oh, sorry, yeah, so, not not only that, but all the. All the major uh, players in the browser world are working on it together. Yeah, uh, yeah, which makes it even more uh, more exciting that they have gotten people on board from the start. Uh, that's a, that's a pretty amazing thing. But uh, the 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 question that immediately arises is if this will uh, uh, will this kill off JavaScript, and that's that's an interesting. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, because stop writing JavaScript. I don't know. Yeah, because because conceivably, if you could compile anything to ASMJS, then you could just write your stuff in Java, and you've got an ASMJS compiler, and then it's Java everywhere. Sure. Uh, but but yeah. okay. But so but that's... that had, I mean, we have our ASMJS. It, it works works decently well in in browsers. I mean, there's uh, the Unreal Engine and Unity compiles do uh, ASMJS. Uh, and, but we're still not really seeing that much use of it outside of the uh, the game programming engines. Right. Okay, so um, talking a little bit more about Node. Um, so there was recently a fork of Node called IOJS, and then eventually the two projects merged back together. Um, this is a topic I, I haven't uh, discussed much on uh, JavaScript Week and Software Engineering Daily. Do, do you have any color on that? Do you know uh, what the motivation was for the rift in the community and, and how they eventually came together? Yeah, the, the, the reason that the fork happened was that the... Uh, some of the, uh, the the main contributors, and, and these were he- like the heavy names. I, I For me, it was kind of like the contributors. Uh, I just figured, oh, who is who is coding Node if these guys aren't? Uh, so it was, a, it was a very, very, very big fork. I actually figured that IOJS would just win. Uh, but the reason that they they did the fork was that they just felt that it wasn't moving uh, moving fast enough. The ECMAScript six features were not being uh, uh, were not being integrated uh, quickly enough, which was basically because they we the Node.js didn't follow V eight as fast as they felt that that it could be. Uh, so IOJS was the, the selling point of IOJS was basically ECMAScript six in Node now. Okay, interesting. And and how did they like? How did they eventually come back together? What was the political situation? Uh, I think that their intent uh, was to merge it back together from the start. I believe that was their their outspoken intent. There was never like screw you guys. We're, <laughs> we're doing this on their own. I think that this was a well. 
guys, we need to do this. We're going to show you how. Uh, and then if you want to do it, we're going to do it on your ground in Node.js. But if you still want to do what you do, with, well, then we have to part ways. Right. Uh, I, I think oh. it was just they, they, made a, they made a statement there and Node the node node and joint and the node foundation that arose 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 out of it they listened yeah so so i interviewed yunong xiao from netflix and it sounds like the netflix stack is similar to that of spotify which is where you work so there's a java backend and javascript in the front end and yeah. in in the case of netflix it sounds like the javascript use cases were creeping more and more into backend like functionality. So I'm I'm curious uh, how if if that compares to how things are going at Spotify and also like what what is the dividing line between when a service should be written in Java and when a service should be written in JavaScript. Ah, I um our uh, backend as it stands now and our tech stack is actually heavily influenced by a blog post that uh, Netflix did a while back I'm not sure how aware Netflix people are about that uh, but Netflix used to have these uh, big uh, which which blog post it's called is it uh, Node.js in flames maybe no 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 this okay. is way earlier several oh, okay. years ago uh it's uh, what what they did. What they did. We we will find it and link it in show notes. Sure, got it. Uh, but uh, what they did was uh, they used to have this big generic API for everything uh, that all the all apps used. The problem was that this uh, this became this was very difficult from a performance standpoint because you had to. Because because the API was so generic, it didn't really know how the interfaces looked for each platform. So each platform would basically have to do a, a ton of requests to to construct the view that they had. Uh, and what they ended up doing instead is to put the uh, stick the generic API and let that remain on the back end, and then have these interim services, uh, interim services, aggregation services uh, that. Uh, that ran between the client and the the actual more generic APIs uh, that were aware of how the uh, the clients the, how the clients looked like how the interfaces looked. So the requests that you made to these services was basically uh, get get the header view metadata. So you would you would get that. No other app ever would be using this this endpoint it was just to serve this this specific view in this specific app so the playstation uh the playstation app uh would have like a playstation endpoint uh and that allowed them to move much faster and build much faster uh, uh much faster applications because they they split their former client logic uh, into uh, a bit into the backend, uh, and these aggregation services, uh, I think that those are what it would be really beneficial to write in in Node. Actually, uh, we don't do it at uh, at Spotify yet. I'm trying to convince people. <laughs> 
Uh, but the Java crowd is, is the Java power is very very strong at Spotify. Let me tell you that the Java hegemony. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, they are. It's a, it's a strong cabal. Uh, but, so, but so, we, so I, I I mean I'd love to hear more about that. Like more about or no the the Spotify uh, versus Netflix. I mean Spotify si- being similar to Netflix. I think that's yeah. really interesting because it seems like at a fundamental level these services are extremely similar. Like Spotify is the high-tech solution to serving music. Netflix is the high-tech solution to serving video to people. Oh, yeah. We're definitely, uh, we're definitely siblings. Uh, it seems like we also prioritize um, user experience in very similar ways. Uh, I think that you see a lot of, when you, when you develop a software and you also use it a lot in your, uh, in your daily life, you you become extremely aware of all its faults. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that just bothers me insanely about Spotify, uh, which is good when you're you're a developer on it. But one thing that doesn't bother me is that we are ridiculously, absurdly good at uh, this, this, just the pure streaming part of things. Uh, almost all things tend to break before uh, streaming songs with Spotify breaks. Uh, and it's the same thing with Netflix. It's just insanely, insanely good at uh, just working, just the pure streaming part when you just play and things uh, appear on your screen. Uh, I can actually watch. I have this tunnel uh, to work uh, where basically my phone dies completely. I can't browse web pages or do anything useful, but. I can play Spotify remarkably, and I can um, uh, and I can watch Netflix. Uh, I can basically do nothing else. Uh, so we are definitely siblings in how we uh, how we prioritize stuff. I think so. And, we- and when you, when you think about that prioritization of getting the streaming right, it's it's almost like you get the streaming right, and then you can build whatever else on top of that. But that's like the core functionality of the application. So- um, so I'm assuming that that core functionality, the the secret sauce, that's essentially written in Java. Uh, yes, uh, Java has over time become stronger and stronger in Spotify. Uh, I think I've only been at Spotify for something like three years, but you you kind of learn the the history of things in a way. So. Before, when I joined, uh, services were written in, you can write, you could write uh, backend services in Python or Java. This has uh, now kind of evolved into, you can pick either uh, Python or Java if it, if, if you pick Java. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's kind of like, yes, become that, yeah, Java is, is, is the choice for things. Uh, and uh, I know that at the beginning, people uh, people were allowed to use whatever they felt were a good tool, uh, which meant that the tech platform that uh, Spotify had were like, Spotify has well over a hundred microservices running in the back uh, backend. And back in the day, you had like tons of these written in completely different stacks, completely different languages, and it was. What, from what I heard, it, it ended up being quite a bit of mess that was really hard to uh, hard to maintain. As people, what, what, 
what is what becomes hard to maintain when you have a, a heterogeneity between different services? Uh, what do you mean heterogeneity? Well, when you have a lot, heter- services that are written in uh, a variety of different languages, when you can just say, I, I can just do this in whatever language I want, what is, yeah. what, how do those problems manifest? Uh, well, I don't think that the problems are as much technical. I mean, we, had, we have this protocol in, uh, at Spotify called Hermes, which is uh, basically a proto-buff with some... Uh, bells and whistles. Uh, I think the problem is more organizational and uh, and and human. You just, I think that if you have, if the if the tech platform, if everything is written in sort of the same way and uh, with sort of the same tool and sort of the same infrastructure, it becomes very approachable for you to just move teams uh, or just. Instead of reporting a bug on a uh, on a service, you can just huh. Let me check. Yeah, just let me check the source code and see if I can fix it. Uh, if you can just go in, uh, if you can submit a pull request with unit tests and something that just fixes a bug, instead of trying to prod a team to fix something while they are busy with other things on the roadmap, you just become a lot more efficient employee. And if everybody can do that. You can your organization becomes much more efficient. So you said that Spotify has over one hundred microservices. What is your definition of microservices architecture, and how does it contrast to service-oriented architecture? Yeah, uh, service like I don't really know what service-oriented architecture means. I know that uh, to me it's sort of like this term that. Uh, uh, a lot of overpaid CTOs at uh, previous <laughs> consultancy gigs I used to throw around, and we most certainly did not have a, <laughs> a service-oriented architecture at those places. Uh, but uh, at Spotify, when I say microservice, I basically mean a service that does one thing. Uh, at Spotify, we had we had an era at Spotify actually where we almost killed the organization by playlist. Uh, we built, like, I, I don't know if, it, this is not general knowledge, but the, uh, the playlist system at Spotify is by far the most advanced system that we have. Uh, because you can, I, if you, um, you can actually go offline and edit your playlist on several different devices and when you connect back, uh, the 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 changes will automatically like merge and migrate, uh, and 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 it will work. Uh, and even if these these are like a collaborative playlist owned by different users, and this feature set essentially caused us to to write a small version of Git. <laughs> Uh, it's just bizarre. So you, the, a playlist can actually be forked uh, and have two different branches and customer service will, well, you made these two changes, which one do you want? And so that kind of thing. Uh, it mostly does it automatically though. But either way, uh, so we ended up with this uh, general purpose and, and the um, general purpose uh, store of URIs. Uh, the the playlist system uh, it's just it just stores lists, uh, so you could stuff anything in there 
really uh which was really handy so you could you could uh, you could just um do uh, we we did uh the inbox the first inbox feature was built on top of playlists because it was so handy that you had this thing that instantly synced between clients and it was everything was just handled for you it was very alluring to build everything on top of playlists but the problem was that uh playlist was not really not really built for this kind of of load and it was not built to be a generic type of database uh so we uh, it put so much load on the the playlist uh, playlist service that it it was essentially down for long long period uh, periods at a time because everybody was just hammering it uh and nobody noticed because it was so still so good at syncing uh, syncing things and uh, a lot of people didn't use two di- two different devices at that time uh but we learned from that that it's a really really bad idea to have uh, single services that have a lot of responsibilities uh it's a lot better to have to separate things out into into small services that do do very few things and and preferably have as few dependencies as possible because that makes it easier to uh to maintain them and they can break they they break in more predictable ways why was it not a feasible solution to just spin up more instances of that playlist service so that you could serve the clients more aggressively uh well to some degree it was i mean we did uh but it's it's not just uh, a performance uh performance problem it's also a complexity problem i mean a um i a, a system that is essentially uh, essentially git i mean that's that's difficult enough to main, uh, to maintain it's it's a tricky not a lot of people knew how to maintain this system at Spotify. It was maintained by some of our very smartest people. Uh, and when you start uh, welding on things like, um, for instance, Starred is one of the uh, more interesting design mistakes that we made. Starred is actually a playlist of a playlist of playlists, uh, and a playlist can maintain uh, can uh, can have ten thousand tracks. Which means that you can, in theory, have uh, um, 100 million uh, tracks in your start. <laughs> uh, and uh, there are people that uh, really put themselves, put their souls into trying this limit out uh, as much as possible. So there I'm is one this... of those people. Yeah. <laughs> How many tracks do you have in your start? Oh man, uh, a lot. I, I I don't have the exact number right now, but I mean, I use that that feature very aggressively, and uh, and I I don't think it's like it's probably not the best way to do what I do on Spotify, but it's one of those things where it's like I got into a habit, and like yeah. now that's just what I do. Yeah, I, I mean that's that's how you deal with that, that's how you that's what you do with software. You you find a, a way to use it, and then you stick with it. Uh, we have this guy Bruno who has like two million tracks in his start. Uh, I'm pretty sure his client doesn't start. <laughs> but uh, either way, so uh, and to add to this complexity, uh, at some point we wanted start to be a set, 
So you can't, unlike the playlists are lists, right? But yeah. start is a set. So you can't add duplicate things to, uh, to, to start. So uh, there's a bunch of uh, special logic welded onto uh, playlists to handle these subtle use cases. And the same thing with, uh, uh, with, uh, with Inbox. And there's also a bunch of other small services that have been built on top of uh, the playlist system that, that have been deprecated and removed from clients, but there are still clients alive that uses it, so we can't remove it yet. Um, and it just adds a ton of complexity to it. It's really hard to make these super generic systems. I mean, you, you just realize that, oh, yeah, it was almost perfect to build start on top of this, but we wanted to be a set and we wanted to have more than 10,000 10, items. And you start doing all these little tweaks to make it uh, work just right. And then you have a really complex service that... Uh, isn't really fun to deal with. Yeah, so that's that's really that's fascinating. I, I, so I want to go uh, back to the JavaScript world, um, and I, maybe this is a good a good uh, uh, segue. Like I think um, you know, Meteor Meteor is an interesting thing to discuss, oh, yeah. um, and and it it kind of dovetails nicely because you know Meteor is something that looks at uh, you know uh, ch- like change sets and real time collaboration as. Uh, like a first class citizen and oh, yeah. you know it's it's interesting because you know you just described real t- uh, you know um this real time collaborative playlist system um and this is this sounds like something this is like exactly a use case that that meteor might solve so what do you yeah. think of meteor oh yeah i i really like meteor meteor is just so nice uh i think i i actually we have Back when I was living in Stockholm, we had this thing called uh, Stockholm Lounge Hackers, where we uh, we were a bunch of people that would basically just descend on a random um, uh, hotel lounge because we didn't have like a proper venue to do the hacks. So we just ended up there, and uh, which was super nice. Uh, it turns out that a, a noisy hotel bar is somehow just conducive to creativity. Uh, and I remember one evening where we were like uh, 20 people or something like that, and I, I introduced Meteor to a couple of people that night. They had not seen it before. And I, I remember that I had to take a phone call that was pretty, it was a pretty difficult phone call with like business stuff. So it took, uh, I think it took like 50 minutes or something like that. So, and when I came back, uh, the uh, people that I have taught the framework to had basically recruited half of the the table <laughs> and built and deployed an app that they were constantly live deploying to. Uh, it was uh, it was just amazing how fast and fun this thing is to write software with. Uh, you get things up running so fast. They offer a deployment platform, and you just. Ah, uh, it, it it is so cool. Yeah, I totally I, agree. And so I, I find Meteor fascinating because in some ways it's very opinionated, but in other ways it's completely agnostic. So when you go to write a Meteor app, there's very little code that's initially visible to the developer. Like, I mean, you've got the oh. .meteor file that has all, all kinds of backend stuff, but that's not really visible to the developer. And this contrasts with, with Rails because on Ruby on Rails, you start with a bunch of folders, you've got all these files, 
Um, So Meteor is unopinionated in the sense that it starts you with just a single file that covers both the client and the server functionality, but it is opinionated in the sense that by default, your app is constantly updating the front end to sync with the database, and you you can just one line deploy it. so yeah, so so what are, what do you what do you think are some other interesting aspects of Meteor that make it so compelling? Um, I uh, I think that Meteor is 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 compelling. I I really like the reasons that you you mentioned, but I I I don't think that we need to praise Meteor more. I think that we need to talk a bit uh, what Meteor needs to do better to be more used than it is. Sure. Uh, because I figured that when I saw Meteor, like, uh, I don't know exactly, two, three, four years ago when it started arriving on the scene, by now, I think that it, I would have expected it to have gone farther. And I think that the reason that it doesn't uh, is for the same reason that we, I can't use it at Spotify. Uh, and that is that it is very, very full stacky it's uh when it when you need uh, to use meteor you basically have to do it all or nothing it's really hard to integrate into something else in theory you could use other databases and all that whatnot but it's it just doesn't slot into an existing stack uh, I think that is part of the reason why why Angular is very uh, very successful where other frameworks weren't because you could just dump it into a part of your page and have it exist just there. Uh, it played very nicely with other things and and Meteor Meteor is something that you just have to buy into. Right, I totally agree with that. And so, so let's let's use that as a transition to a discussion about React. Um, uh, so, so what's interesting about React uh, and Meteor is that uh, Meteor fits in perfectly with this idea of the flux architecture that React talks about. Um, yeah. So, so what do you think is the future of of uh, React, and and how does and does Meteor fit in with that, or and how does React fit in versus Angular? I don't know. Whatever you think is interesting about React. Yeah. Uh... React is, uh, I really like React. Uh, I really do. Uh, it took me a while uh, because it looks so weird with the uh, JSX syntax and, and stuff. Yeah, that JSX is like you write a file that has JavaScript and HTML in it. Exactly. It's, uh, it, it's, it reminds me, I know that uh, I used to uh, code ActionScript back in the day, and they, uh, they had XML as uh, you could write XML in the language in, in just the same way that you write JSX. So it's not completely unfamiliar to me, but it's just, okay, this is weird, especially as a web developer, because you have been t- touted and it has been taught to you for years and years and years that you don't mix uh, markup and code. That is something that web developers inherently try to avoid. But um, what what I think that React just taught me, I, I kind of knew, but it, it, it taught me at like a fundamental level, uh, is that just because you separate uh, pieces of your logic does not mean that you have separated your concerns. Uh, it's very easy to take a bit of your code and put it in another file and 
it feels separate now, but it probably isn't. Uh, there's still this coupling between the two, and if there is, you, you just haven't done yourself a service by putting it in another file. You have just made things even more complicated. Uh, so uh, I think that React, it's really nice that React just HTML and the, the, the view logic that generates it, they are intimately coupled, so it makes a lot of sense to put them in the same place. And, but either way, and, how, how, yeah. Well, and so one, one of the biggest productivity sinks in software engineering is that uh, you know, for every, every application that you write, an engineering team has to write a web app and an iOS app and an Android app. And what's interesting about React and Meteor is that you can tell that they're thinking really deeply about how you can just write something in JavaScript and then basically deploy it to iOS and Android in a really usable fashion. I think this is one of the, the greatest uh, the greatest things that they're working on. Do, yeah. do you think do you think that this is like is this going to be the long the long view of like how we break this awful duopoly of of iOS and Android like you know you, developers have to write in all these different languages? Oh, yeah. I uh, at Spotify we have this this problem in like at, at grand scale. I mean, we we have we have a ton of different platforms and we currently do write everything natively. And we we were one of the companies that really, really tried to make these things web views. Uh, we we spent I, I think we we easily spent we spent so much engineering time on that, it's scary. And then we just failed, just like Facebook did. Um I I think that I I'm really excited about React Native. Um I think that is a super interesting. Should, should we talk about why, what React Native is, perhaps? Yes, yes, please. I'll, I did a show about React, but for in case people haven't heard it, yeah, please talk about what you view your view on React Native is. Yeah, so React Native is basically the same thing as React, except that instead of rendering HTML, it renders uh, uh, it renders native views. So you write these uh, XML. Uh, you just render, instead of rendering HTML, you render these uh, XML-like tags that represent iOS uh, lists or iOS um, iOS headers and, and stuff like that and iOS buttons. Uh, so you are writing uh, code, code specific for a platform. So it's not, you're, you're not writing one interface for every single device. Uh, but you are writing in it with the same technology that you're familiar with. So it's not it's not write uh, write ones run everywhere. It's learn ones write everywhere. Uh, and this is very interesting because it allows you to share uh, JavaScript between uh, uh, between your your devices. But you don't use the browser to render stuff. Because that was always the problem. The browser and the DOM is just not nice enough to to uh, to deliver that nice native mobile experience that we are. That is a reason why mobile devices are so popular and why everything is so nice. And we want to use that, but we don't want to 
rewrite our business logic and sorting logic and, and stuff like that every single time. That is logic that we, we want to share. And that is, uh, that is why React Native is so interesting because it allows you to use this shared JavaScript core that runs on all of the devices and is also easily deployable and updatable uh, and have that control a very, very thin layer of native stuff for every platform. And talking more about just the present day React.js, um, how does React.js compare to AngularJS? Uh, um, I, I think they're two very different things. Uh, React is, uh, uh, so Angular is this pretty big thing. It's originally, it was a, um, a prototyping framework. Uh, a lot of designers really like, uh, many of my designer Cody, uh, designer friends, uh, they really like, um, Angular because it, it just allows you to get something up and running, uh, very fast. And it's obvious where, where to plug things in and there's a lot of plug-in architecture uh, and it it's it's pretty darn opinionated and it gives you like a ton of structure and it's uh, and it's also built around it, it's I, I get the feeling that it's intended to be a front end uh, on top of a, a rest uh, web service there's a lot of resty stuff going on in it it's Sort of, it, it, it. There's a lot of. It's not like Rails, but there's a lot of reminiscing about Rails in it, and it's also very familiar to somebody coming from Java. It's it's very obvious to me that this is coming from from Google, where you use Java a lot, and there's a lot of stuff going on there that is, to me a bit weird that you introduce into JavaScript, personally. Uh, React, on the other hand, does almost nothing. Uh, React is just a framework, not even a framework, just a, just a little library that allows you to render uh, a virtual DOM and have that rewritten as a real DOM. And the, the whole advantage with uh, React is that you can just re-render everything all the bloody time and not have to bother with the, the expense of, of doing that so much. So you can just write your code uh, declaratively and nice, just whenever this changes, just re-render the whole thing, which allows you to skip a lot of complexity in your code because there's a lot less state to worry about. And you just re-render the entire virtual DOM and then it just does a diff between that and the real DOM and figures out what has changed so it can do it the minimal surgical impact on the DOM and make that uh, performance. And that is really all that React does. Right. So um, to begin to close off, you know, we've got about... 10 minutes left or so. Um, I want to talk a bit about your philosophy of programming, uh, just in a broader sense. You answer many questions on Quora when people ask about how to learn to code. When somebody comes to you and says, I wish I could learn how to code, but I'm not smart enough, or I am afraid of coding, or I'm not good at math, how do you respond to those people? Um, 
Well, I'm not good at math either. <laughs> I actually, my, my background is actually in theater. I'm not a computer scientist. I, uh, I started learning programming uh, because I, I don't know. I was just interested in, in something. Uh, I think it was, oh, oh yeah, I was interested in uh, mnemonics. You know, how, you, how, to, how to memorize things, how to do stuff like memorize a set of cards or, or how to remember the, the first 200 digits of pi and all that stuff. It's, some, it's a lot of techniques there that Greeks, uh, the, the Greeks invented like a couple of thousands of years ago when they were burning books. Uh, so I was really into that and I wanted to make a, a website about that. Uh, so I learned this, I just picked this thing up called PHP Nuke, uh, which was basically uh, WordPress, but extremely much more horrible. Uh, and I just managed to uh, just gradually started like doing little tweaks to it and, and started bending, bending stuff to my will. And that is, it, it, and that just snowballed and I, after a while, I was a programmer, really. Uh, I, I am a big proponent of doing and just learning as you go. You just need to decide what it is, like get this picture in your head of, I want to make this. I want to get this thing in my mind out into the real world. And then you just, figure out how can I take one step and you're going to run into a problem and then you're going to solve that problem by just googling it or just banging your head into the problem uh, until you fix it and then you figure out how to take another step and so on. Uh, I think that people should not be so much focused on just learning programming, they should be focused on a problem, something that they would like to solve and then just let programming be a consequence uh, consequence of that. So I never I never learned programming really. I learned I, I just did things and programming came as a consequence. And your writing and your videos are so good because you have the flair of an artist and the flair of a you know Paul. theater person. <laughs> and but you also you have you also have the craftsmanship and the attention to detail that an engineer has. So do you think that this distinction between art and engineering is a false dichotomy? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and oh, and thank you so much. It makes me feel so good. Uh, no, I think that I think there is a sad separation there. I really do. Uh, I think that there is room for, like, hmm, how do you? There's a term going on, right? There's a term that is used a lot that I really dislike, and that term is called real programming. How do you like, become a real program? And that's, that's not real programming. Uh, HTML is not real programming. JavaScript is not real programming. And, you know, like 20, in 20 years back, I bet that people were saying that C++ was not real programming because it was not assembler. And before that, I don't know what I don't even know what kind of sticks you use. Yeah, if you're that. not using if you're not using vacuum tubes, it's not real programming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and right now, and and to a certain degree, I guess that, that that's true. I mean, it, you 
you cannot get a job at Google if you don't know uh, know how time complexity works and knows how to how to just do basic computer science problems. But I think that there is a room nowadays for a vast array of different kinds of classes of programmers. Uh, I mean, some programmers are going to like to work downwards in a chain, right? You have C++ and you, you learn to go down and, and, and you go down to, like, I, I know a guy who, when he uh, studied computer science, they got to program CPUs by putting, like, elect uh, like putting just electricity to the pins on the on the CPU and that's pretty cool working down the chain but a lot of people are also going to learn a programming language and work upwards in the chain they're going to do something there's this thing called hack design which is uh, a, a like a, a place that learns teaches design for programmers uh, and then perhaps there's people move up to like uh, learning about user testing and learning a bit about how to do product development and they, they move in that direction of the chain. So making an application is such a ridiculously complicated thing that Im Im involves so many different disciplines if you're going to do it right. Uh, and to do it efficiently, just, you just need a lot of people and you need a, a lot of people uh, to to cover all that overlap. And I figure that why, why not? It, it makes a lot of sense that a lot of the people there no programming. Uh, it, it's it's just very helpful if if a designer can do a lot of programming on their own instead of just yeah. Could you please move this button two pixels to the left? I mean, this it, there's a lot of efficiency there if if the designer can do that on their own and just. Uh, I think that we need to like realize that programming is a very vast profession that allows for a lot of different degrees of, of, of competency. And as somebody with a strong aesthetic and a strong desire to express yourself, how do you fit into a large company like Spotify? Yeah, <laughs> uh, chaotically, I guess. Uh, I I always say uh, Spotify is one of the best companies that I I, I fit into. Uh, but generally, I I have a hard time fitting into a a corporate culture because uh, I don't know. I I feel very weird uh, in almost every role because my skill set is pretty broad. I used to run my own company. Uh, where I did basically uh, basically everything, uh, sort of like uh, I, I I not only did design, I did marketing, and I did like bookkeeping, and I did like business strategy, and I just just learned to meddle with with all kinds of things. Uh, and I don't think that I've, to be honest, I don't think that I've learned to fit into a corporate culture as as good as some people have. Uh, there's um, some people are, are way better. Yeah, I know that Rasmus, that uh, was the head designer at Spotify, and uh, he moved to Facebook for a while, and now he's at Dropbox, I think. And you find him at rasmus.me or something like that. He uh, he's also a coder. He does things like uh, uh, he he developed this little editor called Code K O D. Uh, and he uh, made a blog post where he had he developed his own programming language, and then he does all like this stuff on design. 
so he's he's very broad, but I don't know. I I have not managed to fit that well into the corporate culture as he is. And I think that because designers have more freedom to to move a bit. Uh, they can move into product, they can move a bit into code, but it's a lot harder for a programmer to move a bit into design or move a bit into product. I think I, I've, I've, I've chosen an unfortunate <laughs> starting point. That's great. Well, okay, Matthias uh, Petr Johansson, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been awesome. Thank you.